Uh, This morning we are uh, looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 10 and then read all of chapter 7. And uh, so I will uh, let you remain seated uh, for that lengthy uh, passage. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Uh, Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is. And that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been far off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness 
that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. While adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. You know, back in the in the eighties, there was this um, less than stellar TV show, um, and I, I can honestly say I don't really remember tons about it, um, except the theme song. The theme song stuck in my head, and I've been able to sing it ever since. And it's been well, you can do the math yourself. Uh, the show was called The Facts of Life. The song, you take the good, you take the bad, you take them both, and there you have the facts of life. This notion that life has both good and bad, that the reality of life is that it isn't all flowers and sunshine and happy and joy and Sometimes it's bitter. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes there's bad that comes with life. And so the reality is you just have to take the good and you have to take the bad. You just take them both. And, and there you have the facts of life. Of course, then that raises questions like, well, hold on. What is good and what is bad? I think more often than not, we answer those questions with, um, answers that have to do with me. We say it's good if I like it. We say it's good if it makes me happy. But good and bad are objective terms, not subjective ones. So you're left wondering, can I know what is good? I mean, if, 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 if these girls on the facts of life are going to sing to me, you take the good, you take the bad, you take them both, and there you have the facts of life. How can I know what is good? And that's actually a question that the preacher asks in verse 12 of chapter 6. He wants to know, can I even know what is good? He's already sort of entered into, in verses 10 and 11, he's, he's entered into, he's reminded us of Genesis 2. He, he's, he's hearkening back to the time when man was created and put in the garden. And, and there God made man, God made all the animals, he put he put man in the garden and he named man. And then he told man to name all the other animals. Those who do the naming have authority over those who are named. And, and in Genesis 2, you're getting this picture that God is over man and 
That's a picture of, of man's role as vice regent on the earth. That when man named the animals, he was given in that moment authority over the rest of creation. And what the preacher reminds us of is that we are limited. We're limited in time and space, but particularly here, we're limited in our knowledge. We're limited in what you and I can know and understand. In fact, um, even the word man uh, sort of reminds you, it's similar in Hebrew at least, the word for man and the word for, for, for ground are essentially the same. They just have a little different ending on them. They sound alike. And so even in calling us mankind, even as call, in, in calling us man, we're reminded, oh, that's right, we come from the ground and we're going back to the ground. And so there are our limits in time. We're limited in space by this body and it turns out, according to the preacher, we're limited in our knowledge, in our ability to understand. He's recognizing uh, the fancy phrase, the creator-creature distinction. You and I are the creature. We are not the creator. And so therefore, we are limited in time, space, knowledge, understanding, power, authority he's reminding us that we are that man is but dust though he has authority over the rest of creation he is but dust and can know but can't know all that he might want to know and it's in light of that verses 10 and 11 that he asks the questions and actually two questions in verse 12 can we know what is good and what's coming after man? It's interesting, though, because the preacher seems time and time again not to come at his own answers, which he's, he's about to try to unpack. He's trying to answer those two questions in uh, the coming passages. But he comes at his questions not with all the knowledge he actually has. He doesn't come at his questions with Genesis 2 affecting the way he thinks. He recognizes the truth of Genesis 2, but then leaves it there. He doesn't know what to do with the facts. Maybe that's the bigger question. Maybe the bigger question isn't, what are the facts of life? Maybe the bigger question is, well, what do I do with them? So what if I know the details? So what if I know the facts? If I don't know what to do with it, then what gain is that to me? What profit is that? And he doesn't bring his, his knowledge of Genesis into these questions. You can't argue with the Creator. You can't argue with the One who is over you. You can't dispute, verse 10, with the one who has authority over you. And in many ways you hear despair in his voice. He almost asks these questions, can I know the good? What comes after man? With a sort of resigned, you know how you do, when you ask sort of a, a, a semi-rhetorical question 
and you kind of just drop your hands at your side like, well, then I don't know what to do with that. And you just let them drop. That's kind of the sound in his voice. I'll take the good. I'll take the bad, whatever those are. Because I don't really have any other choice. Now, let me warn you. Presumably, at least the majority of you are Christians. And, and you come at this with knowledge and information and answers that Solomon didn't yet have. You can't think like you and read Ecclesiastes. You have to think like Solomon. You have to think like someone who, who doesn't see beyond the horizon. Remember his, his limiting phrase over and over and over again, under the sun. He Treat the boundaries of your sight, the horizons all around you, treat that as the end of your knowledge and your understanding. His search is limited to life under the sun. And so that's how he attempts to answer the first question in verse 12. What is good? And then you get this collection, verses 1 through 13 of chapter 7, of Proverbs... But they're not written the way you and I would expect them to be written. I have a friend who called them ironic proverbs. Okay, I can, I can live with that. that. That works for me. When, when he states, you really sort of feel like, wait, somebody had to copy this down wrong. Surely you got some of these things inverted. This isn't the way... We normally think. And we're, we're not going to unpack every single one of them. Just, just We're not going to be here that long. Long enough to look at each and every single proverb. And Some of them we get. We understand a good name is better than precious ointment. Un unless, of course, I cut myself. If I cut my hand with my knife, if I'm, if I'm slicing tomatoes and I cut the tip of my finger off, I don't really care. What other people think of me. I need ointment. I need oil. I need some way to heal that cut. It is, of course, generally speaking, a good name, a good reputation is better than ointment. But remember, Solomon, the preacher, has already said, you know, there's coming a day when you will die. And sooner or later, nobody's going to remember you. Eventually, there will be people who come after you who have no idea who you are. I think his good name is for this life only. He's not looking beyond the grave. A good name doesn't do much good beyond my funeral. For that matter, the day of death, better than the day of birth. That, that doesn't seem to make sense. The house of mourning, better than the house of feasting. How, how many of us, given the option, will choose, right, so I've got this conflict. I've got uh, 6 o'clock tonight, I could either go to a wake or I could go to a wedding. 
I could go to a wake or I could go to a dinner party. I've got to choose between the two. Most people choose the wedding. Most people choose the beginning rather than the end. Most people would choose the joy and the laughter rather than the pain and the sorrow and the loss. That's part of, part of his point here is to set this difference between the pain and sorrow and end versus the beginning, the joy, the mirth, the laughter. Of course, nobody does deep self-examination at a wedding. Nobody does deep, well, maybe a little. Nobody does deep self-examination at a dinner party. Everybody does at a funeral. They always force you to ask questions about what you believe, about where you will be, about what's going to happen to me after the grave. So there's that benefit of, of the funeral, of the house of mourning, of the end versus the beginning. If you recall, the preacher hasn't had much to say that's good about life beyond the grave. So that may not be what's in his mind at all. Instead, he's creating this distinction between wisdom and folly, wisdom and foolishness. And you can see as the rest of these Proverbs sort of Verses 4 through 6, verses 9 through 12, they all have to do with wisdom and or foolishness. The wise or the fool. But he still hasn't answered his question, what is good? He can say this is better than that. This is preferable to that. This will do me more good than that will. But he still hasn't actually answered his question, what is good? All he has is comparisons. The end, it's better than the beginning, but he's not saying it's good or that the beginning is bad. Patience is better than pride. A rebuke from someone who is wise is better than a song of fools. He's not finding objective answers. He's finding Subjective comparisons. When he examines life around him, under the sun, limited in his examination to between the horizons, he can say this is better than that, but he can't say this is what's good and that is what's bad. In fact, look at verse 6. As the crackling of thorns under a pot... So is the laughter of the fools. We have a fire pit in our backyard. And every so often at youth group on Wednesday nights, we make the teenagers cook their own supper. You've got to provide for yourself tonight. They're the hot dogs. They're the s'mores. There's the fire pit. Go. You're on your own. Here are the sticks you can put stuff on. We're constantly doing battle with the fire, getting that thing started. And we don't have pine trees. Y'all know this. You've seen our yard. We don't have pine. We have pecan trees. And so we, in the fall, there's plenty of leaves, plenty of dried pecans. Those make a lot of weird sounds when you throw them in the fire pit, by the way. 
But you, we gather up old, dead, dry leaves and put them in the bottom of the fire pit and light those. Now, you know those are not going to cook hot dogs or s'mores. They're not going to last long enough. They're not going to burn long enough. They're going to kind of, they light quickly. They're great for that. And then, then, they, then they go out. That's it. They stop. You use those to light other things that will last longer. Sticks, logs, kind of graduate from there. That's what Solomon means here. The crackling of thorns. The thorns were dried brush used for kindling. That doesn't cook the stew that's in the pot. It's, it's vanity. It's like, like those dried leaves, like those thorns, is the laughter of fools. It's short-lived. It's temporary. It doesn't quite do what you want it to do. It's vain. Like a, a breath. It's meaningless. The laughter of fools is no different than trying to cook a pot of stew over a big pile of dried leaves. What is good? Well, we can know wisdom is better than folly, but I'm not sure we can really know what is good. That's the, the preacher's observations in this passage. But he's got other problems. Verses 14 to 29, he has other trouble. Have you ever had those moments um, when, I don't know, a fender bender? Or maybe you're walking through the den and you, you kick your pinky toe on the couch. Or you kind of one difficult thing after another. No, no one of them in and of themselves is really a huge, huge deal. But you feel like you've got several things. Like, you know, I broke my favorite whatever. And then not ten minutes later, I kicked my, my big toe on the couch. And then just a few minutes later, the, the dog jumped on me and scratched my legs with his toenails. And, and you just sort of feel like things are just going wrong. And you have this thought, why are these things happening to me? I had my quiet time this morning. <laughs> we do that. We actually kind of suggest, God, you owe me. I mean, I read my Bible three days in a row this week. When we're doing things right, we expect life to go right. It's only when we're doing things wrong that we expect life to go wrong. Or we do it the other way around. If life is going wrong, then I must be not doing something right. That was Job's struggle, was friend's struggle. Job, um, look around you. You've lost everything. Are you sure you're not harboring some secret sin? Because that's got, I mean, that's the only explanation out there for all of this loss and pain and suffering in your life. We, we have this sense, this sort of rule-based notion that what I get is what I deserve. And if I have my quiet time in the morning, then my day should be perfect. If I'm loving Jesus, if I'm serving Christ in this church, if I'm doing everything right, 
then everything should be going well for me. Everything should be great and wonderful and happy. And it's only when, I mean, see, the people that should be getting cancer are the people who are living wild, crazy lives and aren't following Christ. How come Christians get cancer? How come Christians have car accidents? How come Christians struggle with, with this or that effect of the fall? That's our mindset. And some of that is the preacher's question. Look at verse 15. There's a righteous man. Well, in my vain life, I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes and a wicked man who lives a really long time. There's a righteous man who dies entirely too young and a wicked man who lives entirely too long. God, why won't you switch those? It should be, in our minds, the other way around. That's his struggle. His observations say, what's the point of righteousness? What's the point of wisdom? If the same end comes to the righteous and the wicked, if the same end comes to the wise and to the fool. Incidentally, some of his logic is some of the argument used um, for people to deny the... This is why atheists exist, exist right? Their, their, their logic goes something like this. If God exists, He must be good. Bad stuff happens to good people, people who don't deserve it. A good God would put an end to those things. Since there's no end to the bad things happening to the good people, then there must not be a good God. The preacher seems like he's walking down that road. He sounds like a 21st century atheist. He, of course, knows better. He's already admitted the existence of God. He's already admitted God's sovereignty and authority in the world. And, and for that matter, uh, he's already mentioned that there is no one righteous who doesn't sin. For that matter, uh, he's in verse uh, 18 uh, it's good that you should take hold of this and not withhold. One who fears God will come out from both of them. He knows and, and recognizes and, and admits not just the existence of God, but His power and authority over His creation. But His conflict in verse 15 leads to some interesting conclusions. Did you notice this as we read this a few minutes ago? Don't be too righteous. Don't be too wise. You and I are going, um, I'm pretty sure the entire rest of the Bible tells me the exact opposite of that. I'm pretty sure... The entire Bible says, be holy for I am holy. I'm pretty sure the entire Bible teaches, take every thought captive by the word of God. And Solomon looks at life and goes, where's the real value in righteousness or in wisdom if the same end comes to both. Wisdom is better than folly. There's no real ultimate gain or advantage 
to being righteous or to being wise. But don't run to the other extreme either. Don't be too foolish. Don't be too wicked. You almost kind of hear him saying, find, find a nice sweet spot right in the middle and call that good and move on. Have you ever tried to answer the questions of life with only the perspective from under the sun? Have you ever tried to make sense of the world that we live in using only the world's knowledge and understanding and wisdom? What if we actually could make sense of the preacher's struggle? What if we actually had answers to his questions already. Because look at verse 20. The preacher writing Solomon, although, I mean, writing Paul, who was just quoting the Old Testament anyway, what, 800 years before Paul? I mean, that's Romans 3. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Everyone's a sinner. Everyone violates God's law. And that's what explains the crookedness of verse 13. That's what explains the, the brokenness and crookedness of the world in which we live. See, the problem isn't that God messed up or that God's an ogre, or that God created a world with all kinds of tricks and twists and plot twists so that He could just sort of sit back and wring His hands and watch and snicker as we struggled to figure it out. Now what He created was good and right. No, it was very good, He told us at the end of Genesis 1. It's broken, it's messed up because... You and I have committed cosmic treason. God's good creation has been marred by man's rebellion. And so the world that the preacher sees, suffering, trial, struggle, they exist because verse 20 is right. They exist because sin is real. Because Adam decided that he wouldn't take what God had for him. He instead wanted to be God himself. And ultimately it was suffering. The suffering of Christ. The trials of Christ. The struggles of Christ on the earth. His death that makes sense of all other deaths. It's His suffering that makes sense of all other deaths. Suffering And observation alone won't tell us this. God has to tell us this. And God tells us that in His Word. We can't make sense of the world we live in by only looking at the world we live in. We build our entire system of belief as Christians on God's Word on that which comes from above the sun, not from underneath it. Have you ever seen... You have to be careful. You have to be careful. 
because um, I have zero memory. So I, I, this is not an automatic recommendation. I hope I don't mention this movie and watch my wife go, <laughs> um, you're always scared when, when you say things like this as a, as a preacher. Have you ever seen The Truman Show? It's um, uh, Jim Carrey who uh, lives in what turns out, if you haven't, you're getting ready to, um, basically lives in a fake world. Um, he's, he's, what he doesn't realize is that everyone in his life, everyone in his world is a character in a play. And he's the only one in the dark about all of this. And he goes through his normal routine and, and he keeps passing the same people. They do the same thing and same kind. And, and, and it's when something I think falls out of the sky that ultimately tips him off to something's not right. Something's weird. And, and towards the end, he actually ends up in a boat and he, he sails out um, and bumps into something. And you literally, you're looking, and it's, he's in a real world. It looks like he's in a real world. And he bumps into a wall. Only to discover that the, his horizons were literal ends. That there was nothing there. And there you find that there's a, a control room. There are people outside of the world who, who send weather and storms and and make it rain and, and, and cue the actors right, go now, you know, get the timing down so they can pass him at the right time in the right place in, his, in this play that is his life. And it's not until he gets outside of his world that his world makes sense. It's not until you get information from those in the control room who are not technically in that bubble that you finally understand what's going on in his world. You have to read Ecclesiastes as though the preacher were Truman Burbank in the Truman Show. Limited by what he can see. And it's not until you get outside of that world that the world you're looking at actually begins to make sense. You have to get that perspective from above the sun, not from under the sun. And that perspective comes from God and His revelation, His Word. He's made it known to us so that we can understand our world and His role in it and our role in it. We can only, in light of God's revelation, in light of Christ, in light of God's Word, make sense of what is good and what comes after us. Only then can we make sense of suffering and pain and sorrow and struggle in this life. May God grant to us that above-the-sun view of His creation. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, we pray that our thinking would be more and more affected by, impacted by, controlled by, governed by Your Word. May we learn to think Your thoughts after You. May we make sense of um, joy and sorrow, wisdom and folly, righteousness and wickedness, good and evil, better and worse, all in light of what You have told us in Your Word. We pray that we would honor and glorify you and see your world 
as you have revealed it to us. Through Christ we pray. Amen.